You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. The situation is still fluid on the downtown east side after it's on Hastings Street. The mayor says Vancouver reached a turning point as safety concerns grew for people in their tents and the surrounding community. Krista Dow is live on Hastings tonight for us with more on how this day unfolded. Krista. Uh, Sophie, we're here along East Hastings Street where there is not a single tent in sight. Now, this was a full-scale massive operation to clear the dozens of tents and structures from along East Hastings. A city says that the encampments were becoming more dangerous. They had promised to clear out the tent city. And on Wednesday, Vancouver City crews, with support from Vancouver Police, moved in with the full-scale decampment. The operation not without opposition. As protesters and police square off in the heart of the downtown east side. All persons in the street. With emotions running high. This is not compassion here today. This is taking people's homes with nowhere else to go. Stop the at least one person was arrested as city crews worked to remove about 80 structures. Ten city residents given recycling bins to hold their belongings. Everything else discarded. They get housed for Christ's sakes. Public safety at the crux of all of this, the city says. The longer the East Hastings encampment continues, the greater odds that more people will lose their lives. Last July, Fire Chief Karen Fry ordered the tents removed because of fire safety risks to both people and property. This year alone, we have had reported 16 tent fires in that area, and it is escalating, and it is untenable and unsafe. And the tent city becoming a draw for violence and vandalism, officials say. More than two times a day, a person is being assaulted in the encampment, and approximately one-third of the assaults are serious assaults or involve a weapon. The city urging people to take up shelters where they can. Our staff are doing everything we can to help them pack their belongings, giving them carts so they can move those to a location where it is safe and where it's legal to shelter overnight. But with shelters at capacity, options are limited. If we have to find a way for a person to even sleep in the hallway or something, we will do what it takes. We need to restore Hastings as a street that is safe and welcoming to everyone. All right, Krista, you mentioned the dangers to the surrounding community, the businesses, the buildings obstructed. Well, Sophie, the business owners I spoke with really have mixed emotions about all of this. Uh, they do feel for those who've lost their homes, lost their tents. Uh, but at the same time, they say they do feel safer getting to work now without having to navigate around the tents. But overall, though, a lot of mixed reaction about the situation down here. Sophie. All right. Thanks for that. Krista Dow on Hastings for us. And while residents to emergency shelters and outreach services Officials acknowledge there isn't enough permanent housing for everyone. As Catherine Urquhart reports, critics of the decampment say today's actions will simply lead to another encampment somewhere else. Vancouver's Crab Park, his home campment, has been here for more than two years. Many residents having come from an encampment somewhere else, such as Oppenheimer Park. We feel much better here and, and we do a lot better here than we do anywhere else. What we're going to be continuing to do is working with people who are outside, trying to keep them safe and looking to prevent more large entrenched encampments. 
More than 250 people were living in Oppenheimer Park until it was cleared in 2020, amid concerns related to the pandemic. Many then moved to Strathcona Park, where at one point there were more than 300 tents. Now, with the tent city on Hastings Street being cleared, will people move to another location? We do recognize in the city there are more people uh, seeking housing than we have housing available. At UGM, we actually have a 92-bed uh, emergency shelter. In general, for the last year, we've actually been either at or above capacity very consistently with turnaways. An open letter from a coalition of downtown Eastside organizations is calling the decampment a Band-Aid solution that will result in more individuals being forced back onto the streets or relocated to other areas of the city. We have 21,000 units uh, under development right now uh, through BC Housing, working with cities, nonprofit service providers across the province. Uh, and despite that, communities are seeing homelessness either stable or increasing. More barricades. Metro Vancouver's homeless population is estimated at 3,000 plus. And as the weather improves, many wonder if we'll see more tent cities in the months ahead. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And the city says it has quick response teams on standby to discourage tenters from returning or violating the fire chief's existing orders. Well, there are renewed calls for B.C. to speed up housing starts to keep pace with an expected population explosion. Builders are warning that urgent steps are necessary or the affordability crisis will only get worse. Imadagahi has more. It's a trend you don't have to be in real estate, development or government to follow. B.C.'s housing crisis is being fueled by a lack of supply and an increasing push in immigration. The world wants to come to Canada and the world wants to come to BC. So at the end of the day, when you, you don't see the, the long-term pipeline of that happening and keep the supply going, you end up in crisis really, really fast. And that's what's happened in this province. Canada's population grew by more than 1 million last year. And this country's immigration targets will add another 1.5 million over the next three years. 78,000 people moved to Vancouver in 2022, a city that, according to analysts, has a nearly 250,000 unit housing shortfall. Quite undersupplied. At the Vancouver Real Estate Forum Wednesday, the and development community made it coming from. It is really true. The municipalities are imposing a lot of costs, uh, and they're one of the major contributors of cost. It is going to take a lot of concessions on the part of government, regardless of who's involved. Lots of talk about development fees, lots of talk about taxes. All of these costs do not build more supply. The greatest surge of supply Canada ever saw was during the, the, the era of the MERB uh, program, which was tax incentives, not uh, taxes to scare uh, investment capital away. Developers also point to labour shortages, increased material costs and the permitting processes as reasons why it's often taking projects up to nine years to complete. Recent studies have shown that about 30% of the cost of new housing is government fees and charges. That's far, far more than anyone's making in profit delivering housing. Developments have acknowledged lack of supply to be the key contributor to the affordability crisis. Next, they'd like to see even more of what they see as barriers to construction removed. Emadagahi, Global News. Well, nearly six years after the body of a teenage girl was found in Burnaby Central Park, 
day one of the trial of the man accused of killing her. And as Ramina Dea reports, no sooner had the trial begun than the judge sent the jury home early. Ibrahim Ali, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Asked the court clerk. Ali, who doesn't speak English, stood before the judge, gesturing with his hands. I did not kill blank, said Ali's interpreter with conviction twice. Ali stands accused of first-degree murder in connection to the death of a Burnaby teen almost six years ago. The trial postponed five times, according to reports. Justice Lance Bernard making an opening address to jury members on day one of trial and then sending them home. No evidence heard, no witnesses taking the stand. We can't tell you the victim's name or what happened in the absence of the jury because of publication bans. The teen's body was discovered in Burnaby Central Park in July 2017. Hours before her death, she was last seen in a popular coffee shop near Metrotown. A review of the evidence to date indicates murder was a random attack. The motive terrified. It's just scary because that could happen anywhere and anytime to anybody. Because you don't know how to prevent it. If it's random, you can't exactly protect yourself from it. Homicide investigators identified more than 2,000 persons of interest. Then, after a controversial DNA technique, identified a group of people of Middle Eastern descent. Ali, a Burnaby resident and newcomer to Canada, was arrested in September 2018, 14 months after the teen's body was found. It's unclear what evidence led to the murder charge. Justice Bernard reminded the 14 members of the jury about the oath they swore during jury selection to judge the evidence without bias or prejudice. Bernard cautioned them to resist jumping to conclusions based on race. The jury is aware Ali is a Muslim man from the Middle East. Crown prosecutors are expected to lay out their case Thursday. The trial is expected to last roughly three months. Ramina Dea, Global News. Day in Surrey appeared in court this afternoon. Abdul Aziz Kawam appeared by video conference. He faces four terrorism charges, including attempted murder. He's accused of slashing the throat of a man on a bus. Kawam was arrested at the scene. The Crown alleges Kawam carried on comments he allegedly made shortly after the stabbing. A publication ban covers the court proceedings. Kawam is due back in court next week. The victim of that stabbing is out of hospital now and he's sharing the extent of his injuries and a warning some of the content in this report might be disturbing. He's too traumatized to speak on camera, but his brother-in-law did. And as Nitu Garcha reports, the victim says he knows just how close he came to dying. Showing us the 10-inch gash on his neck, the victim of the knife attack on a transit bus in Surrey on Saturday says he still fears for his safety. It scared him to his core. He thought he was going to die. The man released from hospital on Tuesday asked for his identity to be concealed as he copes with the physical and emotional wounds from the near fatal incident, which investigators are treating as terrorism. It was a random thing that comes out of nowhere. His brother-in-law told his main artery by a millimeter. He does remember fighting the guy to the door and pushing him out, but all he remembers is struggling, keeping those arms off of him. But most of his memory of what happened is blurry. How many more people on that bus would have been affected? How many would have been attacked? We don't know the end result of what that guy wanted to do or why. 
Abdul Kawam is alleged to have slashed his throat on a transit bus and assaulting a second victim at a nearby bus stop. Kawam faces four terrorism charges along with attempted murder. Prosecutors allege the attacks were carried out for the so-called Islamic State. When we found out it was terrorism, I think most of us were just, we were numb, like, why? It marks the first time a terror charge has been laid in Canada since the truck attack in which four members of the Afzal family were murdered into trial. It comes from people who feel they have no outlet, who are angry, who want to lash out, people who have lost family or friends, people who feel that they have no way to fight back. None of the while his brother-in-law's physical scars may heal in several months, the emotional ones are deep. He is not a violent man. He doesn't preach violent solutions. He wants to see Canadians helping each other. He says the family, already dealing with ongoing repairs from a December flood, is fundraising to help cover the victim's medical costs like physiotherapy. Adding the support of family, friends and community is where he'll find hope. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Surrey. North Vancouver RCMP are warning the public about a man who exposed himself in a park. It happened at around noon last Friday in Princess Park. Two victims say they were walking in the park when a man in his 60s passed by with a golden retriever. At that point, the man stopped and exposed himself before walking off. People who frequent the park are being told to be on the lookout. And if you recognize the man or have video footage of the incident, you are asked to call police. BC's minimum wage bump, what it means for workers struggling to get by and employers who have to pay it. That's next on the News Hour. Stuck in the mud, how first responders pulled off a dramatic horse rescue. Later. Also tonight, a tough assignment finding BC's best wines. The competition is on right now in the Okanagan. That's still to come tonight. Right now, though, BC is set to have the highest minimum wage in the country soon jumping more than a dollar an hour. Some small businesses say that move could cost them tens of thousands of dollars a year. But as Richard Zussman reports, more help could be on the way. A raise is on the way. This will go a long ways in attracting and retaining workers. Come June 1st, British Columbia will once again have the highest minimum wage among Canada's provinces, going up from the current rate of $15.65 per hour to $16.75 an hour, a 6.9% increase to keep up with inflation. The minimum wage workers have at least latitude to, uh, to uh, afford uh, to continue to fall behind. 2% coffee already pays workers above the minimum wage and see these changes as a way to level the playing field. The current minimum wage in British Columbia and many corporations exploit this by keeping wages low to maximize profits. Most small businesses in the province don't operate that way and restaurants have disproportionately been hit hard. They've seen an increase in the cost of food and transportation costs have gone up as well, ultimately meaning Either the increases get passed on to the customer or staff get laid off. Start looking at robotics you know, technology to reduce labor costs. We saw in Alberta when they put the minimum wage up, a study that just came out showed they actually lost employment because businesses have to you know, stay afloat. The province is consulting with businesses, but no supports on the table yet, especially considering the minimum wage increase is on top of costs associated with a new statutory holiday, mandatory sick days, and the employer's health tax. For a small business owner with 10 employees, all earning minimum wage at its now new rate on June 1st, 
that would amount to $20,000 or nearly $20,000 in additional payroll costs. I don't expect there to be a tremendously long gap before we have a bit of programming in place for small businesses. The province is also looking at permanently tying increases to inflation through law, but that legislation won't come in until next year. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. And Keith Baldry joins us with more on the bump to minimum wage and a look at how BC compares to other provinces, Keith. Yeah, we seem to be keeping the trend we're seeing right across the country. 6.9% is a high rate of an increase, one of the highest we've seen in quite some time. But in terms of comparing to other provinces, BC is not out of line. In fact, it's one of the lowest increases. BC does have the highest minimum wage now, as it has been for some time, an increase of almost 7%. But Ontario is right behind, just 20 cents behind, and a similar increase of 6.8%. Quebec, about a dollar less than that, a little dollar more than that. But again, a 7% increase from year to year. Manitoba, a 13 percent increase when it kicks in in October. Saskatchewan similar, one of the highest percentage increases in the entire country, 15.4 uh, percent. And Nova Scotia, $15 an hour at 10.3 percent. So the percentage is higher than it's normally been, but that's of course because the cost of living is higher in terms of increases than it usually has been. But we're seeing this trend of an increase in minimum wage significantly higher than usual right across the country. BC's not alone on this. And Keith, what do we know about the workers who are making this minimum wage? Yeah, I got some interesting stats from the Labour Ministry today that sort of, I think, uh, explodes some stereotypes of who actually does get minimum wage. Uh, again, 58% of the people on minimum wage are women. Disproportionately high number of women are paid low wages. 52% uh, are age 25 and older. Just 21% fit that stereotype of teenagers getting minimum wage age 15 and 19. And 42% work in businesses with more than 500 employees, which I found interesting. We've always been focusing on the impact on small business. Uh, but most people, almost half the people on minimum wage work for very large companies. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. All right, interesting numbers. Thanks for that, Keith. Right. Coming up, full steam ahead for the cruise ship business. Why the end of the season to start? And get ready for the return of watering restrictions. What you need to know later. Good evening and good news here in Coquitlam. Final clearing stages of a multi-vehicle crash eastbound on Lowheat Highway just past Colony Farm. Integra Tire is proud to serve the communities they are part of. Contact your local dealer today to get up to $100 in tire rebates. Integra Tire, truly local. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Low Heat Highway and Colony Farm. From the stories that affect us all to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, gather Global News. A report has been released on the current state of Vancouver's downtown over the last year. That's right. The Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association says hotel occupancy reached 90% of what it was pre-pandemic. Travel and entertainment sales saw 46% average monthly growth in the second half of last year, with downtown transit ridership recovering to 75% of pre-pandemic levels. Retail visits also increased from the year before, but storefront and office space vacancy both rose slightly. The association says the spike in downtown activity is due to restrictions lifting on travel and events since the pandemic. The cruise ships are obviously coming back, uh, conventions are coming back, and that pent-up need to travel, I think, is being seen locally. So people are coming up from Bellingham and Seattle as much as they're coming in from around the world, and people want to travel again, and we're seeing that. 
In the last half of 2022, travel and entertainment sales grew by an average of 46% a month compared to the year before. And you heard it there. Some good news from BC's cruise ship industry after a strong post-pandemic recovery last year. 2023 is expected to be another banner season. And as Kylie Stanton shows us, it's a big difference from COVID-era concerns that a new U.S. law would cripple the sector. These horns are a part of the soundtrack of tourist season, soon to be blasting on repeat as cruising gets underway in BC. I'm happy to say that the industry is coming back. In fact, we're at 100% of ships currently sailing and we'll see what happens this season, but we expect to be back at 100% capacity, if not a little bit of growth. Aside from the two-year hiatus during the pandemic, the number of cruise ship calls in Victoria have been steadily on the rise from 256 in 2019, 329 in 2022, and an estimated record-breaking 850 thousand passengers while the 331 calls in Vancouver are set to bring in a projected 1.3 million people. So we're very excited to be back and I think we'll be back and better than ever. And big changes are in the works. This is a great day for the region. It's an amazing day for this region. Here in Victoria, plans are now underway to install shore power at Ogden Point, thanks to a $9 million investment from the provincial government. This will let uh, cruise ships turn off their engines, reducing greenhouse gas emissions by almost half. Uh, and it is the equivalent of removing something like 3,400 vehicles from the capital region's road network. But the federal government has yet to contribute to the project, and so far there is no firm timeline as to when it will be completed. It's not a project that will take months, it is a project that will take years, and, and that is the reality of the complexity of what we're dealing with. And as for that bill out of Alaska that was set to allow cruise ships to bypass Canadian ports, those here say the demand speaks for itself. You know, as Canadians, I mean, if we value this business, we, we have to keep an eye on it, um, but it's not a top priority anymore. Thank you. And that means the 17,000 jobs that were supported by the cruise industry before the pandemic here in BC are that much more secure, generating more than $2.7 billion for the provincial economy. What many hope is a sign there's only smooth sailing ahead. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. And just ahead, driving with dementia. We want to ensure their safety, but also balance it with autonomy and independence. How artificial intelligence could help elderly drivers and the rest of us stay safe on the roads. And the new bylaw that could cut down on catalytic converter thefts. Good evening. Traffic is steady both ways over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge tonight with just some leftover volume through Richmond on the east-west connector eastbound. Integra Tire is proud to serve the communities they are part of. Contact your local dealer today and get up to $100 in tire rebates. Integra Tire, truly local. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. The number of catalytic converters being stolen in Surrey is on the rise, has been for a while, so the city is trying to crack down on the crime. A new engraving program will help identify the devices, and as Jennifer Palmer reports, dealers found buying and selling stolen catalytic converters could now face huge fines. A rough start complete with rattle and noisy hum, the sound of a vehicle with no catalytic converter. Catalytic converter theft is a problem in BC, and officials in Surrey are fed up. 
the RCMP trying to curb this theft with a new program called You Etch It, We Catch It, a free of charge program with participating auto shops. Engraving your VIN or vehicle ID number onto your catalytic converter. A decal is also placed on your car warning would-be thieves. It's definitely a step in the right direction because before um, when we did catch people with the catalytic converter, there were no identifying features on those catalytic converters. Therefore, we could not prove it was stolen at that time. But now at least we have one more tool in our tool belt. Thieves are after the metal in catalytic converters and they only need less than a minute to cause thousands of dollars of damage to your vehicle. ICBC's numbers show the cost of this type of crime in 2021. It was 6.7 million, and according to the Surrey RCMP, 2,143 catalytic converter thefts were reported just in 2022. The scrap metal dealers will not be accepting any catalytic converters that are not uh, etched with the VIN number off that vehicle. As for the city of Surrey, it's toughening up bylaws, increasing maximum fines from $10,000 to $50,000 levied against scrap metal dealers who are found to be taking on transactions involving stolen catalytic converters. Scrap metal dealers also have stricter rules to abide by. It has a huge impact on residents, businesses and insurers, and uh, we want to partner with the police to make sure we do everything we can to help resolve this. But while Surrey works to decrease this type of theft, what's unknown is the effect on surrounding municipalities. Surrey RCMP says they're working with other cities to come up with a regional plan to curb this theft. Jennifer Palma, Global News. Volkswagen is recalling 143,000 vehicles across North America and warning owners not to let anyone sit in the front passenger seat of the affected vehicles. The recall involves certain Volkswagen Atlases from model years 2018 to 2021 and a select number of the 2020 Atlas Cross Sport SUVs. The company says some of those vehicles may have faulty wiring that might keep the airbag in the front passenger seat from deploying in a crash. Volkswagen is developing a repair and will alert customers when it is ready. A drug shortage you may not have heard about is forcing some pharmacies to pivot for some of their most at-risk clients. Vernon pharmacist Jody Cunningham is among those dealing with a shortage of Metadol D. That's a brand of methadone that's used to help people with opioid withdrawal so they can stop taking those toxic street drugs. She's asked some patients to switch to a different formulation of methadone, but that's not without its own risks. There is always a risk of destabilization when patients are switched formulations. Some find that a certain formulation, for example, metadol D, might control their withdrawal symptoms better or for a longer period of time. Therefore, they're at less risk of, of going to an illicit supply. According to the provincial drug shortage list, the metadol D shortage has been resolved and supplies should return to normal. But Cunningham says the shortages have happened too many times and the government needs to find a permanent solution. Well, when to give up driving is one of the more challenging questions as we get older because it means giving up our independence, too. Yeah, and that decision can be even more difficult for those living with dementia. So Global's Sarah Often has more on how new technology helps make that decision based on data. For about 50 years, this senior navigated life with a co-pilot. Whenever we travel... She'd be the one reading the map. But in her late 50s, Wayne Hickaway's wife developed symptoms of dementia, a diagnosis that would eventually steal much of her freedom and independence before she lost her life two years ago. Her depth perception was off. Her concentration was off. 
and it got pretty well risky for her to drive. She wasn't happy about it, but she understood that it was not safe anymore. It's a move not every driver is so willing to make, and that's why researchers at the University of Calgary are creating a device to make the decision more black and white. Physicians usually use a cognitive assessment, pen and paper typically, to determine whether a person is fit to drive or not, but these assessments are very limited. With help from the Brain Canada Foundation and Alzheimer's International, the UFC is recruiting dozens of drivers, installing novel technologies like GPS and video into their vehicles, and using machine learning to detect subtle changes in driving behavior. The devices will monitor things like lane finding, speed and navigation to make sure that the drivers can successfully find their way to and from home. Data that researchers hope will help keep patients independent for as long as possible. We want to ensure their safety but also balance it with autonomy and independence. And while Hickway believes it was the right decision for their family. That's just devastating. It's hoped the technology could make an already difficult piece of the journey a little easier to handle. Sarah Offen, Global News. Just ahead on the news hour, winemakers who want to win. Every time I come back, the standard of quality gets higher and higher. What judges are looking for in a competition to decide BC's best wine. But first, horsepower. Rescuers have to do some heavy lifting to free this animal from the mud. The Future of Work series. Tune into Global News April 10th to 23rd for daily features focused on training for the workforce of the future. In partnership with Vancouver Island University. Learn more at viu.ca. From the stories breaking right now to all the day's issues. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Seasonal lawn watering restrictions in Metro Vancouver are set to begin again in just a few weeks' time. Mm -hmm. Starting May 1st, under Stage 1, homes and businesses will be restricted to lawn watering just one morning a week. The regional district says with increasingly variable weather patterns, the restrictions are needed to conserve drinking water for the hot, dry months ahead. Hand watering and watering of edible plants are exempt from the regulations. The restrictions will remain in place until October 15th. All right, so how about those reservoir levels? Let's bring in our meteorologist, Christy Gordon. Uh, we're going to add to those levels tomorrow, it looks like, Christy. Yes, more rainfall on the way, and we'll certainly show you that. But first, yeah, Metro Vancouver, currently the reservoir is at 100%. We're in good standing heading into the summer months, but we then have to look at the snowpack because it's the snowpack and the melt uh, that adds to the reservoir as we continue into the late summer and sort of early fall months. And currently our snowpack, generally across the province, is at about 80%, which is pretty good considering the time of year that we're at. This is a look at one across the south coast. This this is our current year here. This green is actually last year and it shows that we're in fairly good standing and we still do have about a month or maybe even more of snowpack to occur. So still more snow on the way, which could put us into that better range of 100% or maybe above. And even looking at the mountains in through the interior, again, this is just a snapshot looking at the Mission Creek area. This is where we are currently and we still have another month or so of added snowpack to occur, hopefully, if that is the case. Uh, so 
so we're in good standing, which is great news, but always be really careful when you're using water because yes, you just never know. Our weather patterns are becoming much more variable. Tomorrow though, as Sophie mentioned, rainfall, and it means snow for the mountains. We're going to see wet and windy conditions across the south coast. Rain still in the morning on Friday, good Friday. And then by the afternoon hours, I am hoping for some breaks of blue sky across the south coast. Now, those of you in the interior, dry tomorrow, but increasing cloud. Majority of your showers will push in throughout the day on Friday. Here's a look at uh, how much rainfall. West coast of Vancouver Island certainly hit hardest for Metro Vancouver, 10 to 20 millimeters. And this is throughout your Thursday, along with windy conditions. No wind warnings, though, in effect. So drying through the interior, the bulk of the rainfall will be along coastal regions, 12 degrees in Kelowna, and for our region, highs of about 9 to 10 degrees. Uh, Victoria, a little warmer at 11 degrees. So certainly a wet one tomorrow, but it looks like we could come out of it with some breaks of blue sky for our Friday afternoon, good at Friday afternoon. But as we mentioned, we're into a very wet weather pattern. So even as we head throughout our weekend, we have more rainfall on the way. Easter Sunday, certainly looking wet at this point, still a couple days away. So keep tuning back in throughout your long weekend and we'll refine that. But definitely uh, make sure you have some ideas for indoor uh, Easter egg hunts. And Badger is sending us this one. This is this morning in Vancouver, the light, uh, streets lined uh, in beautiful cherry or plum blossoms. Uh, of course, headed towards the Sikh Temple, as you can see there. Thanks to Anne for that one. I tried to match my tie to that photo, not even knowing Anne sent it in. <laughs> you did well. It's not bad, right? It does look blossomish. Yeah, blossomy. <laughs> All right, Maple Ridge firefighters jumped into action this afternoon to save a horse stuck in a ditch. Oh, the animal was spotted stuck in the muddy ditch just off Dudney Trunk Road in 216. Rescuers shoveled a lot of dirt at first, and then after a couple of false starts, used a sling and ropes to pull it to safety. Bystanders say the horse appeared to be exhausted after its ordeal, but it was eventually able to walk away. Well done. Poor guy. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Squire is here now with a look ahead to sports. Well, we'll talk Canucks. Whitecaps are playing tonight, but I wanted to show you what's being called one of the greatest curling shots ever at the Men's World Championship. Watch. Nicholas Adine of Sweden. Apparently, this rock spun 53 and a half times. It hit the Norwegian stone in the 47th rotation, and it stayed in, so they scored two. Even Norway was clapping, but Norway ended up winning 8-7. But that is one of the greatest shots we've ever seen. Highlight reel. Also ahead, out of 500 bottles, which BC wine is the best? Well, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> Unhappy players, unhappy coach in the Canucks. But those in the tank battalion, they're happy the Canucks are back to losing games. Vancouver still has a 6% chance of winning the Connor Bedard lottery. I know 6% isn't a lot, but it's better than zero. But the head coach was not happy, as Chris said, after that 5-2 loss to Seattle last night. And he's starting to sound a lot like Bruce Boudreau and Travis Green did by lamenting this team. Two on one for the Kraken. Tanev in with McCann. Tanev shoots. He scores. 
Loss number 36 on the season was another dose of reality for Canucks Nation and head coach Rick Tockett. The Canucks gave up a league-leading 14th shorthanded goal as Seattle erased an early 2-0 deficit by scoring five unanswered goals. And what's truly troubling is how easy Seattle made it look against Vancouver. The energy level was not there uh, after a day off. That's the alarming thing. Um, I got to take a look at that because if you, you know, if you have days off and guys don't know how to prepare on days off, then I'm going to have to start babysitting a little bit more. You know, that's just the way, that's just the, you know, that's hockey 101, coaches' rules. You know, if you can't be professional on a day off and come in and have energy, then obviously you're doing the wrong thing on a day off. I don't know what they're doing because the energy level, even last game, a little bit same thing, no energy. Hughes. It's not looking really sharp. What Rick Tockett is saying and now seeing for his very own eyes is what we've all watched for far too long. A Canucks team that just isn't good enough and a Canucks core that's showing its true colors. One that prefers to play cute instead of hard and intense. Canucks just 18 shots on goal and a dreadful 0 for 5 with the man advantage. See, the power play gets, this power play, it's very talented, but it, 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 it looks for pretty stuff. And sometimes you, have, you play teams that are got a good PK, and then that means you have to work even harder. You know, it might be a low play take at the net. It might be a, you know, it's one pass shot. People converge on the net. You can't look for a pretty play. And then when they get frustrated, it, 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 for whatever reason, our power play doesn't go good. Our five-on-five five play follows it, which is a, that's not a good trend to have. Nor is it a good trend to see bad habits creeping back in. As good as JT Miller's been under Tockett, he's also exhibit A on what a leader shouldn't do. Tockett wasn't pleased with the lack of hustle on line changes or the body language displayed by his players. After Miller missed his shorthanded breakaway, he went right to the dressing room at the end of his shift while his teammates closed out the period. JT, it looked like uh, you left the bench a little early at the end of the second. Did you block a shot? Uh, yeah, I'm not 100% I'm not sure. Oh, I think you're sure why you left early. The uh, Vancouver Whitecaps start their Champions League quarterfinal series with LAFC tonight, which is the best team in Major League Soccer. But it's a team that has struggled historically at BC Place. The Whitecaps have won four of five all-time at home against LAFC. So we asked Vanny Sartini why that is. Uh, I don't want to jinx ourselves, but, you know, uh, so I'm going to touch everything. Uh, the first thing I think that they suffered teams that they marked the space and not the men. And the second theme is because our turf is not the fastest surface in the world, uh, it uh, presents some challenges because all that, the, the way that the grass is cut in their stadium is it's one of the fastest uh, pitch in the league. And maybe they find a little bit of trouble. But again, I don't know. Let me touch everything. SFU's Football Alumni Society is not going to accept the decision to shut down the football team without a fight. They are hoping to get an injunction next week to at least let SFU play one more season in the Lone Star NCAA Division II Conference, which SFU could if they wanted to. The Lone Star Conference wasn't kicking them out until after the 2023 season. The alumni hopes they could then use that extra time to see if the SFU team would be able to find a way to get into a different University Football Conference. Masters Par 3 tournament. Adams Fenson's at the Masters this year. And he played pretty well, chipping it in here for a bird after a bad tee shot. Three under par. He didn't win, but three under. It's one of the better scores. But how about this? Seamus Power on the eighth. 
So there were five holes in one today. This is one of them on the eighth hole. That sure sounded like a hole in one roar just over mm, Yep. But watch this. Now the odds in a hole in one, even on a par three, is long. But how about the odds on doing a par or doing a hole in one two times in a row? So Seamus Power got one on the eighth, and then he gets one on the ninth. Does that mean he buys two rounds of the clubhouse? It pretty much means you buy <laughs> cases and very expensive stakes. Wow. I never saw my hole-in-one go in. I had one. It was real, but I never saw it go in. It was out in the shadows. You don't see it? Well, the I ball was in the hole. The How it was got in the, in the hole, hole I don't know, but it was in. It counts. It counts. Right. Thanks, Squire. Up next, the assignment we should have been given. Oh, yeah. Judging BC's best wines. Jordan Armstrong is here with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan. Sophie, we have some dramatic video tonight of an arson outside of Vancouver business. It happened in a matter of seconds. Surveillance footage shows a masked man dumping a bottle of liquid at the entrance to Vapester Smoke Shop at 4th and Commercial. Now, a different camera inside shows a customer narrowly escaping the flames and staff scrambling to put out the fire. The motive for this? unknown. You'll hear from the shopkeeper at 11. Plus, the very latest from Hastings Street. Will the tents return tonight? We just got an update from the city. They're telling us that so far, eight people have requested shelter and have been accommodated thus far. We'll have the latest at 11. Sophie? All right. Thanks for that, Jordan. All right. The final round of judging for one of BC's biggest wine competitions wrapped up in Penticton today. Global's Taya Fast spoke with wine experts about what goes into choosing BC's wine of the year. It's a search to find the best of BC's wines. Every time I come back, the standard of quality gets higher and higher, which is just so inspiring. And because this is my home province, I feel incredibly proud and excited about that. Hundreds of BC's finest wines were judged this week for the 2023 BC Lieutenant Governor Wine Awards. We have over 500 wines that have been entered into the competition, 20 different categories of grape varieties, and we are happy to be able to taste here again together and to be able to find some amazing wines that we can showcase to consumers. A panel of 15 esteemed judges from BC and Calgary took part in the three-day event in Penticton following a short pause last year. So we're all delighted to be here. It's a return after many years of the pandemic to bring back wine competitions. This is a great opportunity for the BC wine industry. Judges will award three specific types of wine with silver, gold and platinum, finishing with the Wine of the Year award. This does mean a great deal to them. It's very competitive and on um, an industry level, this is a highly respected competition. So we're really excited to see those results coming through in the coming months. So how do judges pick the very best wine? So are the flavors, are the smells, do I keep going back to the glass and finding something new each time, each time I smell it or taste it? And then is it balanced? So, you know, we're looking at acidity or tannin in red wines. Is that sort of structure balanced with the intensity of flavor? And then does it have a long finish? Does it last for a long time on the palate? You know, maybe it reminds me of, of traveling, uh, traveling to the Okanagan. You know, something that really speaks to a sense of place. Judging wrapped up on Wednesday and awards will be presented in June. TFS Global News, Penticton. 
Yeah, and the Vancouver International Wine Festival is coming up. Uh, I know, right? Or none of us. Let's go check my phone for that missed call. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Exactly. When you say when you say none of us, of course, well, you don't exactly mean me, do you? Well, we like uh, your company, so okay. there's that, yeah. and you can be our DD. If somebody else can drink, yeah. <laughs> That's right. We always <laughs> like you. Because to me, box. all wine just yeah. tastes like wine. <laughs> Like grape juice. <laughs> that's, that's why Squire doesn't get the call. <laughs> Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night. Good night, all.